and welcome to episode two of Speaking of MedTech, a new podcast series from MedTech Insight on all things medical devices. I'm MedTech Insight Executive Editor Sean Schmidt. And I'm Steve Silverman, Sean's co-pilot for these podcasts. I'm a former Food and Drug Administration device compliance chief, and now I head up the Silverman Group, an industry consultancy. Today, we'll be talking about the FDA's Breakthrough Devices Program, what it is, how it operates, and how device makers can take full advantage of the pathway. We'll also discuss the program's overall health and future, including a decision last month by the country's Medicare agency to shoot down a proposed rule that would have made it easier for breakthrough products to get payment coverage. So let's dig in here. Lots to cover. Steve, give a quick overview for our listeners of what the FDA's breakthrough program is and why the agency's device center launched it in the first place. Well, Sean, the first thing to note is that the breakthrough devices program only covers a subset of devices, uh, the ones that diagnose or treat life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating diseases. These are things like cancer, stroke, organ failure, the 600-pound gorillas of the medical device world. Companies that make eligible devices can apply for the breakthrough program, and being accepted into the program doesn't guarantee device approval or clearance. We'll talk more about that later. But program participants do get benefits such as priority review by CDRH, which, as you know, is FDA's device center. Regular interaction with CDRH staff and managers is another advantage, as well as access to high-quality experience reviewers. So CDRH gives breakthrough devices most favored nation status. And these are real benefits that enhance a submission's likelihood of success. A huge incentive was the prospect of Center for Medicare, CMS, coverage for approved and cleared breakthrough devices. But that pathway is off the table, and we're going to get deeper into that topic later, so I'm going to hold off on further comments just now. In terms of why CDRH launched the Breakthrough Devices Program, actually, Sean, it's not that new. Um, The program was congressionally mandated, and it replaces similar review programs like the Expedited Device Access Pathway and the Device Priority Review Initiative. In fact, the Breakthrough Devices program formally absorbs devices in the Expedited Access program. Okay, obviously the Breakthrough Pathway offers benefits for both the FDA and industry. Maybe you could talk to that a bit, as well as any disadvantages that you see. You know, Sean, the benefits are clear. Uh, The Breakthrough Pathway creates a priority review lane for devices that respond to the most awful diseases and medical conditions. It's like the FDA is laying down a marker to say the underlying diseases and conditions are terrible. We know that developing devices to respond is super hard. It's expensive, it's time-consuming, and there's uncertain outcomes. FDA recognized the commitment that some companies are making and the risks that they face, and we want to do what we can to promote this work within regulatory limits, which means that basic principles of safety and effectiveness remain in place. In terms of disadvantages, there are also a couple. I mean, first, the breakthrough program is a victim in some sense of its own success. What I mean by that is that there's been a huge spike in the number of companies seeking breakthrough designation for their products. 
not all of these companies get breakthrough designation and not all designated products make it through the review process. But a spike is a spike. And this creates demand for more qualified staff within FDA with capacity to dedicate to the program. I think that capacity is the bane of CDRH staff members' existence at a time when the same staff members are exhausted from fighting a global pandemic, layering on new responsibility with more complexity and new deliverables for breakthrough devices is rough. Adding to this is what the breakthrough program means for non-breakthrough devices. As you know, Sean, CDRH regulates lots of devices without breakthrough status that are still really, really important. So if you look at orthopedic devices, for example, um, my bad knees may not be life-threatening, but they're still a misery. And if I can't get access to new devices because CDRH staff is fully dedicated to breakthrough review, I'm not going to be comforted knowing that my bad knees won't kill me. You know, I had the pleasure a few years back of meeting with a company called A-Lung, and they're based in Pittsburgh. Their device, it's called the Hemolung. It was one of 17 devices that were part of the original expedited access pathway. Um, the Hemolung, which is essentially an artificial lung, it was later grandfathered into the breakthrough program when that switch from the expedited access program, or EAP, to breakthrough was made by the FDA. Anyway, top leaders at A-Lung had nothing but praise for the program, both when it was EAP and later breakthrough. So, Steve, I, I know you talk to a lot of people in the medtech arena, including some whose companies are playing in the breakthrough program. What are you hearing out there? What issues are most important for these companies? What are some of the things that they're saying? I think that this is a good time to talk about payment, Sean, the CMS coverage issue that I mentioned earlier. Late in the last administration, there was a proposed rule, the Medicare Coverage for Innovative Technology Rule, or MCIT, requiring four years of CMS coverage for breakthrough devices that received FDA clearance or approval. That sounds like a coverage path for a lot of devices because FDA has admitted hundreds of devices to the breakthrough program, but the number of devices that actually make it all the way through the program to clearance or approval is much, much lower. I'd confidently put that number below 50 for the years 2020 and 2021. Still, in the current administration, CMS first paused the coverage rule and later rescinded it. There's talk of providing a substitute coverage pathway but nothing concrete has been proposed. So device makers go from thinking that CMS will cover their breakthrough devices to having no idea what will happen with coverage. And that's a stressor that sits on top of constrained FDA resources needed to make breakthrough review operational. These stressors make it tougher for device companies to rationalize breakthrough program participation. Sean, I also want you to spell a common myth. Breakthrough designation does not mean faster approval or clearance. What it means is that FDA will give special attention to breakthrough devices and work with sponsors to resolve concerns and otherwise manage issues that come up during CDRH review. In many respects, breakthrough devices are put under a spotlight. That translates to attention and dedicated resources for CDRH. It does not mean expedited clearance and approval. 
as I said before, CDRH follows basic regulatory practice for breakthrough devices, and that means applying standard PMA or 510K review principles, whatever the associated timeline. So who else outside of device companies are affected by the FDA's program, and have you heard any feedback? I think that non-industry responses have generally been positive, and that's even accounting for things like constrained FDA resources and confusion about CMS coverage. Look, Sean, fundamentally, there's a good story here. CDRH recognizes that breakthrough devices are critical and that they create unique challenges that require creative solutions. So the center is innovating to get more breakthrough devices to market, more attention, more experienced staff, more sponsor interaction. Do device companies benefit? Sure. But more important, so do the patients who need these breakthrough devices because there's nothing else out there that works at all or works as well. And this means that every time a breakthrough device comes to market, CDRH gets to talk about how it enhances public health. That message lands with multiple audiences, including patients and healthcare providers. In turn, the messaging creates breakthrough program support. So this feedback that you're getting from people involved in the program, either directly or indirectly, are they reactions that the FDA was expecting when it launched the program? I'm not really sure what FDA expected, so I'm going to focus on what I've seen. I think that support for the Breakthrough Program is unprecedented, even when compared to earlier programs like the Expedited Access Pathway and the Priority Review Program. So the $60,000 question is why this success? And I've got a few theories. The first is the least cynical, so I'll start with that one. The past decade has taught device companies that they can collaborate with CDRH to tackle tricky problems. CDRH staff is not a bunch of pushovers, and nobody is taking regulatory requirements off the table. At the same time, open discussion of ideas, even with industry, can produce results that CDRH would struggle to get to on its own. Here, we're talking about devices to prevent death and terrible disability. CDRH and industry priorities align develop and implement feasible solutions. CDRH has repeatedly used an open tent to bring stakeholders to the table and is now benefiting from that practice. The somewhat more cynical response is the payment piece. Companies signed up for the breakthrough program thinking that cleared and approved devices would get CMS coverage. That's now changed and the likelihood and conditions of coverage are unclear. So we'll see if this has a dampening effect on breakthrough program participation. You know, a few moments ago, I mentioned A-Lung and its breakthrough hemolung device, which in their case was able to get to patients who needed it faster than if the company had gone through a more traditional review pathway. And there must be other success stories out there like that. Talk about that. FDA and industry have highlighted lots of devices that received breakthrough designation and even some that made it to clearance or approval. So I'm not sure that individual devices stand out. What's significant is the rapid uptake of the program, interest in it, and attention that the program has received. Even with challenges like staffing and unclear payment, the program shows that CDRH innovation and collaboration operates to enhance device availability. 
that's a good story and it has traction. But obviously life isn't all sunshine, rainbows and puppies. I'm sure there have been challenges around the program. Sean, I'm deeply concerned about the view that life is not full of puppies. Um, As a strong puppy advocate, I feel that they should be available everywhere and at all times. Um, But yeah, I think that the key challenges are the ones that we've talked about with respect to the Breakthrough Devices program. There's paper-thin CDRH resources, and there's real confusion about CMS coverage. What has FDA done, if anything, to address those challenges? Is it, and has it, tweaked the program in response? CDRH's focus has been on communication. There's a lot of information that's available online at the FDA website and elsewhere that dives deep on the Breakthrough Program. There have also been public presentations like agency-led webinars. So getting the word out about the program has been a success story, I think. But CDRH has more basic challenges like insufficient staff who are consumed by pandemic work. The same people needed to build up the Breakthrough Program are just fully committed elsewhere. So how does CDRH fix this problem? It's easy to point to user fee negotiations, for example, and say, well, industry should pay for more staff, and CDRH should recruit that staff. There's controversy around this position, but assuming for now that it's true, the timeline needed to recruit, train, and dedicated staff is measured in years, so that's not a great option. Maybe there's a rule for industry. Device makers have smart people who could gather consider breakthrough device goals and challenges, and make suggestions to support the program. I'm not suggesting that industry take over the program, but as it has done in other contexts, industry could be a thought partner to FDA, proposing solutions that meet agency and stakeholder needs. So where does the Medicare agency go from here when it comes to getting these types of novel devices to patients? Might the MCIT role or or MCIT role, if you happen to pronounce it that way. Will that come back, but maybe slightly modified? I think that those are really important questions, and there's no way that they're going away. What's interesting is that lots of stakeholders beyond industry are paying attention to this initiative. So for example, there are public interest organizations that want CMS coverage for breakthrough devices because they know that it will promote treatment of critical medical needs. So they see the Breakthrough Program, along with CMS coverage, as key strategies to help patient populations that they represent. That's got nothing to do with industry saying we want coverage for our Breakthrough devices. For its part, CMS says that it will consider alternatives to the coverage rule that it rescinded. But I haven't seen anything specific so far, and I don't know of any CMS plans to propose alternatives. Without sustained attention to this issue, I'm concerned that the push for coverage will fade. Interesting. So, okay, this might actually be a good time to quickly talk about the FDA's Safer Technologies Program, or STEP. Um, It seems like STEP could be viewed as a sort of, you know, quote-unquote, breakthrough light type of program. Am I on the right track here? Yeah, that's a good way to characterize it, Sean. This is a CDRH program geared toward medical devices that are reasonably likely to improve the safety of availability treatments that target a disease. What's significant is that STEP focuses on devices that don't qualify 
for the breakthrough program because they don't target life-threatening or permanently disabling diseases. Still, STEP participants get many of the perks of the Breakthrough Devices program, like focused interaction with CDRH staff and managers, um, as well as sprint discussions. So, in effect, STEP creates a three-tiered device review framework. First, our Breakthrough Devices. Second, our STEP Devices. And bringing up the rear are the many other devices that CDRH regulates. And Sean, I use the phrase bringing up the rear intentionally. I'm worried about what this three-tiered approach means for the many, many devices in this third group that I mentioned. Will the resources dedicated to these devices match their priority? You know, my concern though, Sean, honestly, may just be a tempest in a teapot. Um, Step has been around for a while and it doesn't seem to be getting much traction. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's writing about it. Neither FDA nor device makers seem to be interested. So step may just fade to a slow and very quiet death. You know, I've always wondered why the FDA launched step in the first place. Yeah, I'm not sure either, but here's an educated guess. There are lots of really important devices that don't make the cut for a breakthrough designation. Some are definitely innovative. Some meet really important patient needs. Some find better ways to do what other devices do today. It's great to promote development of these devices, and I give FDA credit for trying, but there are real challenges too. First, how in the world is FDA going to staff STEP when the cupboards are bare for the breakthrough program? Second, how do you figure out which devices qualify for STEP? Everybody thinks that their device is important. FDA has provided some broad definitions, but they encompass devices that I'm confident FDA never planned to include in STEP. Without answers to these and other basic questions, it's hard to see STEP getting off the ground. Those are points to chew on for sure. So let's start wrapping up our discussion here. Is the Breakthrough Devices program here to stay? And if it is, what does the program need to make sure it evolves as time goes on? The program is here to stay, definitely. Now, it's probably going to change over time. It may even be renamed or revised based on congressional and stakeholder input. But I suspect that the fundamentals will remain. FDA is going to designate certain devices as high priority because of the critical needs that they meet. Those devices are going to get an all-hands-on-deck treatment to assure that they, in turn, make it to patients on a priority basis. And on that note, we'll close out today's podcast. Steve, I'll talk to you in two weeks when we'll be chatting about the FDA's work in harmonizing its quality system regulation with international standard ISO 1345. I know I'll have a lot to say about that, and I'm sure you will too. Yeah, it's an interesting topic, Sean. In some respect, it seems very kind of technical and detailed, but in other ways, it's very straightforward, and it's going to have a significant impact on device makers that want to sell their products in the United States. So it should be a lively chat, and I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Thanks, Steve. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for today's Speaking of MedTech podcast. Aside from QSR harmonization, we'll be discussing many different topics over the next few months including the MEDUFA-5 user fee negotiations between FDA and industry and the medical device single audit program and 
even the rise of digital medtech, just to name a few. In the meantime, you can check out our full suite of podcasts and much, much more at medtechinsight.com. And always remember, you can find us on Twitter at medtech underscore insight. Until next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.